This is one of those Sundays that's going to seem like there's a lot of God. And I just want to remind you that you can um, define that however you want to or not. Um, and, you know, that I can um, talk about it, but there's always the possibility that it may or may not exist. So a fairly recent Washington Post article has been making the rounds. Four people have sent it to me directly. It's been posted in a group I'm in and in no less than four Facebook groups I'm part of and in the UU subreddit. The article is called, I left the church and now I long for a church for the nuns or something like that. How many of you have seen it? Yeah, see. <laughs> Eventually, and usually sooner rather than later, one of the comments recommends that the author try a Unitarian Universalist congregation. Spoiler alert, he has. He did. It didn't seem to work for him. I don't know that UUCL would work for him either for reasons that I don't know and for some reasons that I do know. I certainly don't know him, the author Perry Bacon. I'm spiritual, but not religious. The first time I heard this was more than 30 years ago, but the reference to the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, has existed at least since 1968. I found that in the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion. After spiritual, but not religious, became synonymous with the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, my first thought was, these are our people. Some of you may identify that way, and you may be surprised to have found a place where you can be both spiritual and a little bit religious. Oh, I do, I do hope so, I do. One writer says that some, some of the spiritual but not religious have resigned from religions they once belonged to, taking what was helpful while leaving the rest behind. Others have collected wisdom from the four corners of the world, which they use like cooks with a pantry full of spices. You can pretty much define the difference. I, I imagine those folks or we folks um, can often think of religion as meaning dogmatic or creedal, um, spirit, which of which you, you is not. Um, Spiritual meaning a longing for more meaning, more depth, more feeling, more connection, more life. Isn't that at least some of why we're all here today? I think so. In this year's youth curriculum, Crossing Paths, the youth are exploring different world religions. One of the lenses they're using is how each faith defines the problem in the world. I'm gonna be using a lot of air quotes today because, because there are a lot of things that are quoted. There are a lot of terms. So the problem in the world and then the solution to that problem. So for instance, Buddhism sees the problem in the world as suffering, great. And the solution is nirvana or enlightenment or unattachment. Christianity, Christians see the problem in the world as sin and the solution as salvation. So any thoughts about how Unitarian Universalists see the problem? 
separation. We see how the world separates or disconnects people from their deepest selves, from each other, and from life's gifts. And really, that's what breaks our hearts. What is the UU solution? Connection. The Unitarian Universalist faith seeks to restore those sacred connections in three ways, by listening to our deepest selves, by opening to life's gifts, and by serving needs greater than our own. We humans go in search of meaning all the time. We go on retreats, valid. I love retreats. The men have one coming up, right? We do self-help seminars. We walk the Camino de, de Santiago in Spain. We visit Machu Picchu or spend a week in the bottom of Canyon de Chelly. People spend hours praying to the heavens. We can deepen from all those experiences. We can also long for depth, which is why we choose those experiences. Sometimes though, maybe often, what we long for is not found out there. What we long for we can find right in our own backyards or right under our feet. Sometimes we can't see the X that marks that spot of finding our deepest longings because we're standing on it. Do we ever long for what we already have? Do we ever long for what we already have as a path to fulfillment? Can we imagine that we already have everything we need? That we may be right now standing on holy ground, as God said to Moses about the burning bush. There was a time in my life when I thought that home was somewhere else. I had a spiritual teacher say to me once when I was younger, it's not that you don't want to be here, you just want to go home. And I really resonated with that. It was so true for me in that moment. But it was as though home was someplace out there that I couldn't remember or didn't know where it was and couldn't even be sure it existed, but that it was more home than here. Home was in the spiritual realm. I've heard it said that some that we are not humans having a spiritual experience, but spiritual beings having a human experience. Well, that may be true, but it may also be that they're not separate. Somehow the dominant religious culture in the United States has created and supported polarities between the secular and the sacred, the physical and the spiritual, the body and the soul. We're asked to choose between the divine and the world, the sacred and the mundane. And we learn to fear the world and to fear, feel shame about our bodies. Our author Barbara Brown Taylor asked, what if there is no spiritual treasure to be found apart from the bodily experiences of human life on earth? 
What if there is no spiritual treasure to be found apart from the bodily experiences of human life on earth? One of our tasks, one of our spiritual tasks is to come home to our bodies, to understand that we are now on and in holy ground, to glean from any experience what growth is happening for us, to recognize that red X under our feet, to trust the body, to enlighten the soul. In many of this year's sermons coming up, I'm going to be focusing on finding and exploring and appreciating those places where the body enlightens the soul, those places where X marks the spot. Those sermons are going to be woven through the monthly themes. If my memory serves me, I built my first altar when I was 10 or 12 years old. It was at the window of my room, which was went pretty low to the floor, on a cinder block covered by a cloth. I put different objects on it that meant something to me, probably a rock or two or five, <laughs> a feather, a candle, maybe the tarot cards that my mom agreed I could get from the Scholastic Book Club. I don't think she knew what they were. Flowers, <laughs> flowers from the yard. Who knows what was there? I don't remember. But I, I knew it was really important for me to do. My next oldest sister got married when she was 17. I was 10. After she moved out, I got her room. But it was a time filled with grief at her absence in my life as I had known it. I realize now an awareness that I was the next female left at home and the weight of what felt like a huge responsibility in that and the uncertainty of what to do with this room I had just inherited. So I built an altar, not because I knew what I was doing, not because I consciously connected the two or recognized the importance of this rite of passage or consciously connected her leaving with the need to mark it in some way but because it felt like the same to do, the thing to do. When you have, when, so my question for you is this, <laughs> when have you had such a powerful experience that you needed to honor it or mark it in some way that by some small thing, you made your own altar? You bought, you bought a tiny clay turtle on the Diné reservation because you felt a connection there to the earth and the turtle to remind you to move through life more slowly or you pick up a rock from a lake to have at home to remind you of how you felt there or you plant seeds or a tree to mark someone's passing what have you done to mark the spot to build an altar to honor an experience in some way Think about it for a moment. I'd invite two or three people to share if you've done something like that. Do you have something come to your mind? Yeah. I didn't realize it was an altar until today. 
I have, of course, my five children's pictures as babies. And I set up on our table in our bedroom, Bruce's parents, my parents' photos, little jars with some of their ashes. And I see that every day. The whetstone that my grandfather carried in his pocket for I don't know how many decades, and then gave it to my dad shortly before his death. And now I have that whetstone that my dad had had for like 42 years. I don't know, that may seem silly, mm -hmm. but it's like that continuation of the generations with this little whetstone to sharpen mm -hmm. knives to, to be about you know, keeping the family sharp. And Mm -hmm. So I'm going to repeat this for those who may not have heard it and for the um, for the um, podcast. Um, so uh, the pictures of her five children and um, her husband's parents and her parents and um, pictures of those. And then a whetstone that was given to her by her father shortly before he died um, by who gave and his and the grandfather who gave it to her father and um, as a reminder to carry forth the keeping the family sharp um, I love that who else Lisa <clears throat> when I was a child we would go to Brookery Gardens in South Carolina with my family my sister and my dad um, and both my parents uh, passed I mean, my mom was an artist and she loved the trees there. So she would take pictures of the trees um, because she felt like the, when she drew her trees, they were like commingling of the spirit and body together. Um, and she would take those pictures home. And she drew so many beautiful pictures of trees. So I took my children um, and my husband went to Brooklyn Gardens and we walked among the trees um, and just kind of remembered and then we went to the gift shop and I found this beautiful pendant of a tree that looked just like the one my mom would draw and I bought it and I wear it now when I'm a family um, and when the children are doing things that I want my parents to see and it's kind of something I wear and I'll drive around. So I'll repeat that. Um, I'm going to summarize. And I hope I get it. Um, taking her family to visit trees that she used to visit as a child that her mother would take pictures of and then come back and recreate um, in art. And she found a pendant that looked like those pictures her mother made. And she wears it now as a remembrance. One more. Robin. I realize I have altars everywhere in my house. <laughs> I have altars above my seat, like just feathers or something will be circular. I have an altar for extended family. Irv and I have our altars of our pictures. And then we have the pictures of our extended family. And then there's a big shelf that looks like a, at this point, like a cup or maybe whatever, a bunch of stuff all over it. Looks like, well, I would know how to take this stuff away, but it's things I found in the woods over the last 20 years. So altars everywhere of, of little things that are found in the woods and uh, pictures of family and uh, 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 
family altar and um, many different places of, of remembrance and, and grounding. Thank you for sharing. Once we remember, because I think we know it when we're young and then the world talks us out of it, that wherever we are is holy and that we are always building altars, both visible to the world and invisible altars in our hearts. We remember that the entire world itself is an altar to the sacredness, to the mystery, to the miracle of life. For Perry Bacon of the Post article of Wishing for a Church for the Nuns, I believe whether or not he calls it God, he is looking for, and maybe he's found it, what Barbara Brown Taylor calls the more, the really real, the luminous web that holds everything in place. Unitarian Universalists would call it the web of existence of which we all are part. Of which we all are part. You are not alone. I am here. What he's looking for is connection, I think, a people to share those places and experiences with, to tell his stories, to be accepted, known, and loved. Connection in a congregation gives people who were formerly invisible to each other meaning, purpose, and worth. The good news is that we get to choose to connect with others, to overcome separation. And we don't have to choose between the sacred and the mundane, between the body and the soul or the spirit. The, we don't have to choose the palm tree or the olive branch, the Ten Commandments or the lessons of hospitality we learned in our families. We can consider the lilies, the birds of the air, the baking of the bread or the cookies and the cookies, dancing, making love, a business deal gone, gone bad, getting fired from a job, a divorce, a broken toy, Play-Doh, a hug from a sibling or a parent or a loved one. All of those we get when we choose to open to life's gifts. Isn't this truly the good news that we can reconnect with our deepest self? We can open to life's gifts and serve needs greater than our own, thus ending this illusion of separateness and recognizing that we're all caught up in this inextricable web of mutuality, of life, call to embrace the joy of connection and of life. It sounds simple. I don't think it is. Or maybe it is. There's um, uh, an American mystic named Gurdjieff, I think, who says it can, the awakening up to love is possible if you seek it and want it. Possible to those who are ready to be in the struggle and to work on themselves for a long time and persistently in order to attain it. Maybe it's like that. Maybe that's true. And maybe it's simple. And maybe it's both. But together this year, 
I would like to explore that with you. For this week, I urge you to set a little altar in the world or in your heart. Stop what you're doing long enough to know and see where you are, who you're with, and how awesome the place is. You are not alone. We are here. Try it and let this journey, this year's journey continue. Amen and blessed be.